Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know, it's one thing to know that sea level rise has been happening and that scientists anticipate that it'll accelerate over the coming decades. You can read reports and parse charts, but does that get you any closer to feeling the reality of this effect of climate change? In today's edition of Climate Fix, our regular collaboration with the KQED science team, we talk with artists who have been creating work to help us all understand sea level rise more viscerally. From a radio play to a legendary map of the San Francisco archipelago to an installation at Ocean Beach, we're talking art and climate change. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I'm joined this morning in the studio by Ezra David Romero, climate reporter with KQED and a regular on Climate Fix Forum's collaboration with our science team here at the station. Thanks so much for joining us, Ezra. Hey there. So, Ezra, um, you've been reporting on sea level rise for some time, but it's still measured in inches, not feet. In what ways is it visible and in what ways does it still kind of seem abstract? I think for most people, it's not visible because it's happening on the fringes of the bay. It's most visible, like, say, during a king tide where the water may lap over the shore in places like East Palo Alto and the Embarcadero and Alameda. It also can bubble up underground with groundwater, which we'll hear hopefully later. I think the other way it's really visible is through these projects we have around the Bay Area, whether they're these big levees or bridges or things like that that we're preparing to keep the water out in the coming future. Yeah. You know, as a reporter, what's challenging about trying to sort of explain a process that could take, you know, really decades and still has a lot of uncertainty to it? I think it's mainly that people are really worried about the here and now, right? Sea level rise is this long game, you know, one foot by 2050 potentially or more, three feet, six feet by 2100. So it's hard for people to wrap their minds around what's coming because it's not necessarily this big wave or like, one day, all this water will be here. It's going to be gradual. Yeah. 
I want to bring in um, someone we've got on the Zoom here. Let's bring in Christina Hill, director of the Institute for Urban and Regional Development in the College of Environmental Design at UC Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I want you to talk about some of the sea level rise projections that we have seen. Like if I go and I, you know, look up right now, one of the uh, one of the different projections for the Bay Area, what am I likely to see, you know, between now and 2100, say? Well, between now and 2100, um, we're expecting to see between three and six feet total. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that depends on the outcome of things like the COP28 talks and to the extent that we're really reducing our emissions. But it also depends on physical processes in the ice that we don't fully understand. Hmm. So we could actually end up with a higher sea level rise than these projections suggest. But the most likely is three to six feet by 2100. Hmm. And what's the sort of shape of that change, right? I mean, does it kind of proceed in a linear way, just kind of, you know, a a few more centimeters at a time? Or is there uh, like a curve to it? There is definitely a curve to it. And that's really hard for people to understand because it can seem like change happens overnight. Hmm. We're in the flatter part of the curve right now. But around 2040, we're going to see a lot steeper curve and we'll start to notice real impacts. Yeah. Now, you know, it's been my perception, and maybe this is inaccurate, that there are changes in how extreme the scenario, like the top end scenarios have been, like that there's, you said there's a lot of uncertainty about the sort of melting of these glacial systems. But some of that uncertainty seems like it's maybe gotten better, like we were anticipating uh, a little bit less sea level rise than maybe we once were. Well, the state of California is going to be using NASA's projections going forward. They'll be announcing that this year. And that puts us into a slightly narrower range with less um, extreme projections. So that puts us into the three feet or six feet by 2100 range. Mm -hmm. It's still possible that uh, we could see a change in sea level rise that's higher. I just don't want to rule that out because as somebody with a background in geology, I know that there's a, always a mix of sudden events and gradual processes. Yeah. So it could be worse, but it's probably going to be between three and six feet. Yeah. Thanks so much for that. I want to add in another guest here. We've got Nicole Gluckstern, playwright and director of The Forever Wave, an audio play set in San Francisco in 2070 after catastrophic sea level rise. Hi there. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about um, how you have imagined this play? Like, what kind of play is this? So I consider The Forever Wave to be a speculative future It does take place in 2070 after a 200-foot sea level rise, which is, of course, the extreme end of the projection. And it is also based on a play by Dylan Thomas called Under Milk Wood. So like Under Milk Wood, it takes place during the course of a single day in an isolated seaside village, which is the future mm-hmm. San Francisco. Mm. And how did you decide to sort of frame the work in a, in the way that it talks about sea level rise? Like, it's not like you're going to have a scientist who comes on and explains it. So like, are people are just living in this future world of the archipelago? Completely. They are just living there, uh, just living their lives. 
I was extremely fortunate to have had a visual aid um, co-created by a friend, Burrito Justice, who also does the Bikes to Books project with me, and Brian Stokel, who I think we're going to hear from later today. Um, So I had a visual aid already of what San Francisco could look like after a 200-foot sea level rise, and then I was able to populate those remaining hills and sort of the points of San Francisco that have not been submerged with the characters that live in that world. Yeah. So I want to hear a little bit of the radio play. Um, let's, uh, Let's listen in. There have always been hurricanes, they said in the West, not comprehending. Because it wasn't just the waters on the East Coast that were rising. And it wasn't just the earthquakes and fires that they had to fear. All along the West Coast, the waters were rising too. All along, the waves kept pushing further up the shores until one day they woke from their sleep and the waves blocked out the sun and there was no ignoring them anymore. The forever wave was coming. They called it the forever wave, but really, it was more like a tide. A king tide. The greatest, most imperial king tide of all time. A tide that would never roll back out to sea again. A tide that reshaped a peninsula into an island chain and a thriving metropolis into a loose collective of encampments on the highest ground. A tide that reduced the many levels of haves and have-nots to just these, those who survived and those who did not. That was just a piece of Nicole Gluckstern's The Forever Wave, a radio play about sea level rise. I'm interested, like, how did you get interested in trying to present sea level rise as this kind of uh, structural feature in a play? That's a really great question, and I sometimes think about it myself. How did I come up with that? (laughs) Um, I think there was a combination of factors. I had been interested in playing around with the idea of climate change theatrically for some time. Um, I had also sort of concurrently been interested in presenting the Dylan Thomas play under Milkwood, and Mm. for a long time... I couldn't really figure out how to stage it because it was written originally as a radio play and trying to conceptualize how would I put it on a stage was was a little daunting. And just at a certain point, I found that I could marry the two ideas Mm -hmm. and come up with this adaptation of Under Milk Wood that was then set in this climate-impacted San Francisco but in a way that made sense to the spirit of San Francisco hmm. and a way that made the future seem, although dire and, you know, nobody wants to live in a drowned San Francisco, mm-hmm. maybe, but in a speculative future that was not all gloom and doom. It was but still San francisco Still like the, San Francisco. <laughs> the parrots of Telegraph Hill are still in there, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. And based yeah. on resilience and collaboration and the ways that we can work together as a city to mm-hmm. overcome disaster. So 
as presented in the play, I mean, this is an apocalyptic scenario. We're talking a couple hundred feet of sea level rise. And as we heard, you know, earlier from Christina Hill, you know, we're talking, thinking more like three to six feet, but, you know, with some important uncertainties, et cetera. Um, so for you, what was the value in imagining kind of the worst case of the worst case scenario here? Well, uh, no one really wants to hear a play about a three-foot level sea level rise. <laughs> to me, that so it's just, just said seems... in a meeting about the sea level wall at the the sea wall. Yeah, that just seems like hedging your bets. Like yeah. if you're going to be theatrical, my my inclination is to always go big, go bold. Theater allows us to fantasize scenarios that may never happen, but that we want to confront and discuss and think about in order to inform the way that we live in this world. Yeah. Are you making other work about climate change or do you feel like you you work this out of your system? Oh, never say never. (laughs) (laughs) Currently, I'm touring the Forever Wave as Uh a digital piece on the Fringe Festival circuit. Uh, Certain Fringe Festivals around the world have added a digital component uh, during the pandemic years. Mm-hmm. So I can tour this work internationally from the comfort of home. Oh, so that's yeah. where we're doing right now. Well, that's cool. And if somebody wants to listen to it, I mean, can they just get it on? Like, is there, they, can they go wherever podcasts are sold? Or like, how does this work? Um, so at the moment, I'm not selling it as a, as a podcast or an iTunes mm-hmm. or anything because I'm touring it. Right, right. They right. could visit my website. They can Google me. And then uh, the tickets to the digital fringe festivals that I'm participating in will be on sale there. And it's an on-demand piece. And also, if you're my buddy, just reach out. I've got a link. (laughs) Yeah, if you know her in real life. uh, We're we're talking about how artists are grappling with sea level rise. This is our latest installment of Climate Fix, which is Forum's regular collaboration with KQED's science team. From that team, we've got Ezra David Romero, climate reporter with KQED here in the studio with me. We're also joined by Nicole Gluckstern, playwright and director of The Forever Wave, an audio play set in San Francisco in 2070 after catastrophic sea level rise. And we're joined by Christina Hill, director of the Institute for Urban and Regional Development in the College of Environmental Design at Berkeley. We'd love to hear from you. Is there a work of art that's helped you understand climate change better? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. We're asking for a work of art that's helped you understand climate change better. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how artists are grappling with sea level rise. This is the latest installment of Climate Fix, which is Forum's regular collaboration with KQED's science team, joined by KQED's Ezra David Romero, climate reporter, reports on sea level rise. Also joined by Christina Hill, director of the Institute for Urban and Regional Development in the College of Environmental Design at Berkeley, and Nicole Gluckstern, playwright and director of The Forever Wave, an audio play set in a climate-changed San Francisco. I want to add another voice to our conversation. Um, Brian Stokel, urban planner, cartographer, co-creator of a series of maps that depict sort of Bay Area topography, transportation systems, and relative to this conversation, uh, sea level rise. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. So this map, um, you co-created it with uh, the San Franciscan we all know as Burrito Justice. (laughs) Uh, Talk to me a little bit about sort of how this map came about and, and what it looks like. So it goes back to 2007, approximately, when I just wanted a map, a a topographic map of San Francisco, and I couldn't find anything out there that delivered. The USGS maps are nice, but in a city, they're horrible. So I started drawing one digitally using Illustrator, meticulously every contour. Um, My God. Yeah. (laughs) And fast forward to 2012, I find, you know, it was a, a passion work that was very slow. But I finally finished in 2012, put it on my blog at the time when blogs were used. Uh And uh, I thought I put some other pieces on there about transportation at the time. I thought they'd get all the attention. But then I see a few weeks later, hey, there's this weird animated sea level rise about islands of San Francisco. And it's this burrito justice guy. Yeah. And rather than getting, uh, he did give credit, but rather than getting like, wait, what did he do? I thought, hey. Let's. I'm going to approach him, and we work together to refine the map and refine. Uh, he he'd written most of the story uh, with a dose of humor, resilience, and yeah. doom. Yeah, and uh, the rest is history. Because part of what it shows, right, is just this um, this set of islands which would exist, which are basically the hilltops, right? Yeah, yeah. And what what would that actually look like if people are thinking about oh, what what parts of the city would be underwater? Like what what's above water and what's not? Right. Um, so first of all, Potrero Hill would become an island first uh. because it's uh, the most prominent. It's got flatlands around it, and you'd have telegraph, like you mentioned earlier. The parrots would be okay, <laughs> and uh, because of the Bernal Cut where the uh, San Jose goes through, Bernal Hill would become an island as well. But the main part of the central Twin Peaks, Mount Davidson, even central Richmond District would all be part of the the main island. But there'd be many coves, many inlets. It'd be fascinating. I mean, Nicole, I can imagine that's kind of fun to play with, right? I mean, even though it is doomy, it is scary, but there's also this like sense of an island culture developing here that maybe it's not exactly what we have with our current peninsula. It absolutely was fun. I loved trying to 
figure out which character was going to inhabit which part of San Francisco, what made sense for that character. And uh, definitely some of them swapped places a few times during the writing process. That's interesting. Um, Talk to me a little bit more, Brian, about what it takes to sort of um, make these versions uh, of the of the map, and whether you thought about making ones that show, you know, say twenty five feet of sea level rise, which maybe would be, you know, um, in the sort of realistic end of an extreme projection. Right. Like I mentioned before, I probably I, nowadays you could probably j- download all these contours off of USGS, but mm-hmm. back then I just did what I could and literally traced it dot by dot, even though you can't quite see that. Um, I did do a 25-foot sea level rise map, and Burrito Justin and I collaborated two years later in 2014 called Mission Bay Rising, and that looked at the now till 2036, and uh, we looked, it's less severe, it may may not be radio play fodder, but we did get in the Olympics and a seawall along the Embarcadero that sadly was destroyed by Hurricane Ed. Oh, God. I, Christina Hill, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, for these scenarios that are, you know, on the very upper end of, of the range, what could be done if that were to come to pass? Like, what were, what are there ways in which the city could be protected from that kind of catastrophic sea level rise? There really isn't much that can be done. I mean, humans would have to retreat to isolated, more more isolated areas and more inland areas, but the effect on the international economy Mm -hmm. would be unbelievable. So you have to imagine a whole different global economy. Because so much of the development that has occurred over time, including, say, all of the ports, uh, would, would be inundated. Well, the ports would be probably the best off because boats are boats, right? They'll float to the next highest spot. But it's the places where we manufacture things mm-hmm. that are on flat land near the coast. Mm-hmm. And those would all be obliterated. Yeah. What's the sort of level of sea level rise that you think could be sustained, like that we could we could deal with? Like if it was three feet, we'd probably be okay. Is there is there uh, like a disjuncture in any of that? I think that we um, can adapt to three feet and six feet and even 10 feet, which many scientists think is inevitable, 10 feet. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have to start realizing that we don't actually live in a bathtub of contour lines. We live in a landscape that has water in it underneath, Mm -hmm. that the ocean actually sticks its toe into the land and pushes groundwater up. And so the dry crust of a city that we've designed is going to get wet from below. And that's what we have to begin to conceptualize in order to understand what the challenge is. Because hmm. what does that, I mean, for those of us who are not structural engineers, like what does that do to a city? Well, first it's going to block all the sewer lines. It's going to put water into the sewer lines so that it can't do what it's designed for. We're going to see flooding on the surface. We're going to see sewage backing up into buildings. Um, we're going to see foundations corrode in some places because salty groundwater comes up and surrounds the foundations that weren't designed to be in salt water. Um, and then eventually we're going to see the movement of contaminated materials. Actually, that could be one of the first things that happens. Mm-hmm. All of these old military bases and contaminated sites for various uh, pollutants could start to move towards buildings mm-hmm. as we try to individually adapt and pump and other kinds of things mm-hmm. happen. 
So really, seawalls don't really cover us for all these things mm. because that water is going to rise anyway behind any seawall or levee. Yeah. Ezra, I mean, as you go around and talk with local governments and environmental groups and things, like, do you think people have managed to actually bring in the knowledge that Christina Hill is is delivering to us into the planning process? Or do you feel like they're still working with kind of an outdated idea that oh, if, we, if we block the water at the sea edge, we're fine? I think it's all over the place. I mean, this like the Department of Toxic Substance Control has like a three and a half foot uh, plan. Like everyone has to adhere to that. But that's one agency and that's relatively new and the the water board has something similar, but you know, we're in a place with like 40 cities on the water, you know, in this area. And so there's mm-hmm. lots of different plans and there's many places that are just, they do want to just put a seawall or they want to do nothing. They want to put housing on the shore in places like Newark. And then you have places like San Mateo County that wants to protect their whole shoreline from 10 feet of water. Um, and then they're trying to come up with other plans to think about the groundwater rise. I think the groundwater rise is a bit slower. They're not thinking about it as much. Mm. But that is slowly changing. I mean, when you talk about one municipality thinking about and maybe having the resources to protect yeah. from a 10-foot sea level rise versus another municipality that might not have that money or those resources. I mean, doesn't this kind of have to be done regionally if we want a system that works? Or is it kind of going to be like one of these flood control systems where – you end up actually making things worse for the sort of downstream communities or communities around? Sort of both and. I mean, we need it like like government, like making changes. It's very local, but it's also in a regional sense. And so we do have the Bay Conservation Development Commission here. Um, it's a state agency that's in charge of the first 100 feet of all the shoreline, the 400 feet, the 400 miles of shoreline. And they are coming up with a regional shoreline adaptation plan that's like their first iteration is due at the end of 2024. Mm. And they're actively working with the community and sta- they have government stakeholders and they're trying to come up with a regional plan. But the one flaw that some people call as a flaw is that it doesn't mandate this. It doesn't mandate that mm. governments and people get in char- be involved. So they're, they're relying on people volunteering to do this. Yeah. Power of persuasion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, We're talking about how artists are grappling with sea level rise, latest installment of Climate Fix Forum's collaboration with KQED's science team. Joined by Ezra David Romero, climate reporter with KQED. Also joined by Nicole Gluckstern, playwright and director of The Forever Wave, an audio play set in San Francisco. Brian Stokel, urban planner and cartographer, co-creator of a series of maps that, uh, that show sea level rise in San Francisco. And we're also joined by Christina Hill, director of the Institute for Urban and Regional Development in the College of Environmental Design at Berkeley. Um, We're also taking your recommendations for art that has helped you understand climate change better. You can give us a call. Number is 866-733-6786. This probably won't surprise uh, the people in this room, but there have already been a couple of recommendations for the ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. One listener writes that it's the best novel I've ever read about climate change. Pam writes, the harrowing opening chapters of Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future really helped me understand what we might be facing, what deadly heat waves, which is what that book really addresses, uh, really might look like. It was so difficult to read that I put the book down for an entire year. I wish I hadn't because I was so glad when I read the rest of it, informative and uplifting and hopeful and made me more of an activist. You can actually... 
go back and listen to a forum episode with Kim Stanley Robinson and Annalie Newitz uh, if you're interested. Uh, you can also email us your recommendations for uh, art that's helped you understand climate change better at forum at kqed.org. You can find our digital community over on the Discord. If you don't know how to get to that, you can go to kqed.org slash forum to sign up. I want to bring in another artist. Ana Teresa Fernandez is an artist and creator of the On the Horizon art installation that's been displayed uh, on beaches in California, Mexico, and at San Francisco Cliff House. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So for those who haven't seen it, just like describe what your art installation looks like. So it's a six foot acrylic cylinder that's 10 inch in diameter. Mm -hmm. It stands a little bit taller than usually what the scale of a human is. I refer to them as sea bodies because they look exactly as such a body made out of ocean water. And I place them along the shoreline and people that are just happening to pass by or people that I invite to invoke and collaborate amidst on the horizon can participate within it. And so the voices become very much about the community, um, artists that collaborate amidst on the horizon, such as Aji Sisoko from Lines Ballet or Michael Montgomery. Um, writers as well as Rebecca Solnit have spoken amidst it. But more than anything, it's for people to really understand on a vertical scale mm -hmm. what it means for the sea level to rise six feet. Because we understand so much about the tides on a horizontal level as tides mm. come in. <laughs> Even though it comes in six feet, it's always at our feet, right? Mm -hmm. And so the understanding at a vertical scale of six feet mm. of ocean water being suspended right next to us as you're standing there dry and not in the water is a completely different experience. Yeah. And when you say that people can, uh, can participate, do they actually, they fill up the acrylic sea bodies, right? Absolutely. So each of the sea body requires about 45 gallons of seawater. And so people, sorry, it, it requires five gallons of, of ocean water. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, 45, 45, my, <laughs> my, it's still early, 45 <laughs> gallons. And so the enormity of actually filling up 16 of these acrylic cylinders takes a whole community in order for people to be able to mm -hmm. bring it to life. And at each location that we've done this installation, we bring in people from the community to be able to help us assist it in bringing it to life. Hmm. How about for you? How does making this works or change the way that you thought about sea level rise? For me? Yeah. Well, I think that when I first listened to that statistic, which I was at an art environment conference in the museum in Nevada, and one of the artists said, sea levels will rise six feet in the next 50 to 60 years. And I was sitting there and I'm, I'm a pretty tall Mexican. I'm 5'10". <laughs> um, you know, I wouldn't get invited to dance with men because I was so much taller. <laughs> and so this idea of, of height, right? And I was like, six feet, six feet is pretty tall. And that's when my, um, I became voracious with trying to bring this statistic, which I think that there's this massive disassociation between numbers mm. and a feeling and an understanding, especially here in Northern California, Alexis, because I look out my window, I live in the outer sunset, mm -hmm. there's no people in the water because it's extremely cold. So there's this disparity mm. in literacy of the ocean and off mm. water, because even though we are surrounded by it here in, in San Francisco, there's not really an exchange or an interaction that happens with it. 
And so how can you bridge that disparity and that disconnect? Because it is a privilege in one sense to be able to be and able to enjoy it in the water, right? It requires a wetsuit most often because <laughs> it's so cold. And so as a surfer, I know the joy and the beauty that the ocean brings to me, but a massive amount of the population doesn't get to experience it mm. amidst it, in it, right? Mm -hmm. If we do, it's from the shore, it's far away. So do, we don't speak ocean. And how can you bring that awareness of six feet of vertical sea level rise for people in a, in a safe way, in a way that can be community building, that can be a process of awareness? And so what On the Horizon does, it's really much about like creating agency. And you cannot create agency without the three A's. For me, I've finally come up with this idea that you need both or the, the trifecta. You need awareness, you need access, and you need action in order to have agency, which then you have ambassadors for the cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, Christina Hill, I know that you uh, at Berkeley have been thinking about different ways of trying to do this communication. Like, do you have one of those um, kind of mantras, you know, awareness, ac uh, access, action, or, or something like that? I try to think about the, you know, the goal of our design work and, and any art really is... Um, to say something about, you know, something about what's meaningful about being human right now. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think about is that we need to promote the idea of shared resourcefulness. And I think we can do that through art. I think we can help people understand that they need to be brave and they need to think about other people, have compassion, and they need to be resourceful together, not one family or one household at a time. So that's what we try to promote. You know, Brian, I saw you uh, nodding with the um, collective resourcefulness, and I feel like your project feels like that. It feels like that um, oftentimes the work that you have done has sort of reached out to these other people in the, in the community. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I think the map, much like uh, for many people here, it brought a lot of people to look at it and, mm -hmm. and think about it because the number one question we got is, oh, did I get flooded or not? Am, mm -hmm. I, am mm -hmm. I there? And I think that I, the shared resourcefulness, I think is key. And if, because like Ezra said earlier, climate change is so slow and distant and it's dissonant that we need something to bring us into the here and now to say, hey, what do I do now? And create that shared resourcefulness because the being distant and scary means I'm running away. Right. It's like my homework or my term paper. I'm running away from it. I'm going to do a lot of um, yeah. procrastination. And we just need to drumbeat that shared resourcefulness and use art to be the gateway to that because art's a lot less scary than uh, six feet or yeah. 20 or 200 And less feet. daunting than an IPCC report, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We're <laughs> talking about how artists are grappling with sea level rise. Part of Climate Fix forms regular collaboration with KQED science team. Joined by Brian Stokel, urban planner, cartographer, Nicole Gluckstern, playwright, director of the Forever Wave, Ana Teresa Fernandez, who's an artist and creator of the On the Horizon art installation, Christina Hill, Institute uh, for Urban and Regional Development at the College of Environmental Design at UC Berkeley. We're going to get some of your calls and comments right after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how artists are grappling with sea level rise, part of a Climate Fix, our collab with the science team here at the station. We'd love to hear from you. What works of art have helped you understand climate change better? Uh, we uh, will take your emails, forum at kqed.org, or you can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Our guests this morning are UC Berkeley's Christina Hill, artist Ana Teresa Fernandez, KQED's Ezra David Romero, Nicole Gluckstern, a playwright, and Brian Stokel, urban planner and cartographer. Let's bring in uh, Richard Festinger in Richmond. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so I had, uh, in 1985, I was asked to compose some music uh, using scientific data on climate change, uh, which resulted in a 30-minute-long string quartet uh, called Icarus in Flight um, that has uh, been uh, performed a number of times and uh, with the idea of trying to make uh, the scientific data audible over the course of a piece that models climate change from a period of 1880 projected out to 2080. So what was different about working with the climate change data? I mean, I I can imagine, you know, the sort of famous Al Gore inconvenient truth kind of hockey stick graph uh, being modeled in music, I suppose. But how, how did you kind of approach the challenge? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. Um, the hockey stick model is is quite relevant here, and um, and that was a cha- that was a, a, a challenge. So the data that I used, uh, and I'll I'll just say what they are briefly and describe how I used them. Um, the first one, well, these were human drivers of popu- of uh, climate change. So the first one was population growth, and I used that to control the average density of musical events over time. <laughs> so the music gets busier and busier as the piece goes on. Um, then uh, a second data set was carbon emissions, and that controlled the frequency range of the music from the lowest to the highest pitch. Uh, and finally, um, the third data set was um, the human adaptation of the of, of land, of the Earth's land use, which increases from about 13 to 43 percent over that period of time. And that was used to control the, the, the tone color or timbre of the music. Oh, wow. Man, that actually sounds fascinating. Um, I, uh, Richard, fascinating. What's the name of the piece if people want to try and search it out? Uh, it's called Icarus in Flight. Icarus. Um, everyone knows the story of Icarus. You know who uh, who whose father fashioned him wings of ma- uh, wings of wax and, mm-hmm. and cautioned him not to fly too close to the sun. But he got into a environment too hot for him, and the wings melted, and he drowned in the sea. Um, so. Uh, 
so you can, uh, uh, I think the best way actually to find the piece is to visit the website of the commissioning agency, which is called, it's a San Francisco organization, a very interesting organization called the Climate Music Project, hmm. whose idea is that um, it, uh, they think it will be easier to reach people about the urgency of climate change and convince them to uh, engage in climate activism through music and the arts rather than through uh, scientific lectures and graphs of data. Yeah. So cool. Hey, thanks so much, uh, Richard. Stanley, I think one of the producers wants to talk to you for one second. Um, Ezra, have you heard uh, of that or other sort of like musical uh, projects? or, or things people I haven't heard of that one, but I... When I lived in Fresno about eight years ago, when we had that big drought, you know, in the Central Valley, I was mm. a reporter there. There was a UC Berkeley, I mean, a Fresno State professor who, music professor, who created like the sounds of drought using a live orchestra and all that. And we did some reporting on that. There's probably a story on the internet somewhere with my name attached <laughs> to that. And Hopefully I've also, you wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. I've also like, I got Brian's uh, map a year or so ago and I had it at my desk and I used to live in Noe Shoals and now I live in Mission Gulf, you know, yeah. surrounded by water. So like that was a really good one for me to like help visualize as a sea level rise reporter, even though that's like the most extreme case. Oh, yeah. Um, we also have um, a comment from Fran, who turns out, to, Fran writes, I'm the executive producer of the Climate Music Project. We're based in San Francisco, <laughs> aimed to connect people to climate science and action through the emotional power of music. Our music is a collaboration of scientists and composers to create music and visual events to tell the story of climate change in a way that resonates, educates, and motivates. We have one composition called What If We that the band Copus, uh, which ex- uh, specifically explores sea level rise. Um, I wanted to ask you, Nicole, as you have gotten this work out into the world, do you feel like you've connected up into a whole kind of network of climate change artists? Well, I think I had already been sort of connected with Mm -hmm. folks who were writing about climate change, especially in theater. I'm also, I moonlight as a theater critic, so I have seen works from other folks and uh, folks have presented works, uh, shall we say, in my presence that have resonated with me and tackle the idea of climate change. Mm Um, so it's definitely, I think it's a theme that, like sea level, is rising <laughs> in the collective consciousness. Yeah. And um, I think we're going to see more works um, addressing these situations and exploring these scenarios as we go on. Yeah. A few more um, Bay Area artists as well. Um, Bay Area artist Amy Balkins, A People's Archive of Sinking and Melting. It's a collection of artifacts from people who live in areas that are threatened by climate change, and anyone can contribute. It's A People's Archive of Sinking and Melting. Um, Marie writes, uh, Bay Area artist Linda Gass, that's G-A-S-S, does amazing work with quilted silk maps that depict the impacts of climate change on our communities. Very powerful and engaging. And Matthew writes, the show Extrapolations hit home for me as a look at the lived experience of our future selves. Especially poignant was the contrast between, for example, truck drivers who can only drive at night in India versus billionaires retreating to climate-controlled enclaves. How is class treated in the flooded San Francisco scenario, Nicole? 
In the flooded San Francisco of the forever wave, I feel like class is very relevant because what we see actually is sort of the the rise of folks who might be considered an underclass or might be marginalized in the current mm-hmm. uh, San Francisco. We have folks who are really banding together and collaborating on their survival strategies, folks who were formerly homeless now creating these sort of vivid artistic communities, uh, bands of children, orphan children or abandoned children coming together to create their own housing the situations, feral houses. the feral houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody is focused on survival and adaptation, but in a collaborative, community-oriented way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of folks who are using skills that they might have developed along the way, such as foraging or being particularly handy or fishing or scavenging and using these to thrive in the new drown San Francisco. Any low power FM maybe? Oh, you know. (laughs) Just trying to think of my uh, future. I don't know. I'm not handy. I can't fish. Uh, I think it would be pedal powered. Pedal powered. Yeah, there you go. Um, Let's bring in uh, Emma in Oakland. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alexis. Hey, Um, welcome. So I wanted, thank you. Um, So my name's Emma Greenbaum. I work at the Exploratorium on our climate and landscapes work. So we think about how to bring art and science together, especially to communicate sea level rise. Um, And I heard Linda Gass just got shouted out, but she also has a project called the Living Shoreline Project, Mm -hmm. which was a community-engaged art project where she brought folks together to create the historic shoreline of Cooley Landing in native plants, which I think is a really important uh, angle to think about sea level rise in the bay is through where the shoreline used to be, Mm because in many cases, that's where the water will be. Um, And Linda was also selected the first time ever, this latest national climate assessment they did, the first ever call for artwork to be featured in the national climate assessment. So if people are looking for inspiration or or how to connect to climate change through artistic practice. There's just a huge, they got incredible submissions from all over the country, every issue. Um, yeah, in the fifth national climate assessment, and Linda was uh, selected. We had her in conversation on Thursday night uh, with another artist and some authors from the assessment. Oh, that's awesome. Emma, thank you so much for uh, for filling us in on all that. That sounds awesome. Um, I, Brian, I wanted to ask you about a, uh, something that Emma said which was that historical shoreline maps can actually be like very powerful in showing us sort of what the what the future could look like. And I find the ones that are sometimes extremely effective are where you're they show the old shoreline and you're like standing on solid ground like in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, are there what are what are the other ways that you help sort of get people um, understanding those historical maps as like a guide to our future? Um, and one of the ways we, with the maps we created, was we noted that, in fact, 25-foot sea level rise basically brings back the historical shorelines so that all those land-filled areas, whether it's the Financial District, Mission Bay, et cetera, that you're bridging the past to the future. And um, that 
in some ways, we can see some photographs of old things where there was Yerba Buena Cove, and it's just going to come back. Mm. So that that's one way we can do that. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, you know, we've got a listener who writes in to say, you know, thank you for presenting a topic in a way that can get people to see and feel the changes that are coming. Do you have any examples of people acting on climate as a result of your art? Let's throw it to Ana Teresa first, uh, and then we'll come to Nicole. Yeah, well, when I presented on the horizon in Tijuana, we actually worked with an uh, organization called Climate Kids and Unime, which are orphan kids with HIV and AIDS. And they were the ones that uh, filled up on the horizon while we did it right on the border um, in Playas de Tijuana. And it was incredible for them to really see and understand what it meant, because <laughs> they were looking at the sea bodies and they were saying, you know, this is this is taller than me. This is what the future looks like. And I said, yeah, these bodies are the future. And so when they were starting to talk amidst themselves, they were just like they were making these signs with their hands of hot and, the, and they were jumping up and trying to mimic the height. And so I think there comes a different understanding of what that future will feel and look like. And I think that they start becoming the voices of like warning what is to come. And I think that that's what creating this, again, this access and this opportunity of awareness of to pretty much any and all demographics, because I think that it is important, especially for kids to really understand what that means and what that feels mm. like and what that looks like. Yeah, thanks for that. Nicole? So I haven't had anyone come up to me directly to tell me that they have changed their particular lifestyle or anything as a result of this work. But what I think I do hope people take away from it is a sense of optimism, maybe mm. even some relief that we know that change is coming. We don't know how dire it will be until it happens. But even in the worst case scenario, there is resilience and possibility and adaptation. And I feel like if people just take that away from the work, that we don't have to just live in a state of continual fear, but also of optimism, mm -hmm. I'd love I'd love to know <laughs> that that was the impact. Yeah. You know, listener Martina writes and say, I love the vision of creating estuary commons, floating neighborhoods, tidal cities in, in East Oakland that was shared by the All Bay Collective in the Resilient by Design Challenge. And Christina Hill, I was going to ask you about this because there are these sort of, they're not design fictions because they're usually part of like a planning process or there's these things, but there's there are these kind of visions of how the city could be that are seem to exist somewhere between like policy and, and art. Do you think that is sort of the right bridging tool between the kind of stuff we're talking about in this hour and, you know, a, a planning document that goes out from BCDC? I do think so. And I was on that team. That was sort of my idea that the team improved on the estuary hmm. commons. Tidal city is what we call the floating neighborhoods, not on the bay, but on the groundwater. If you dig artificial ponds, um, and it, the people at the end of the competition, the the jury said that it was uh, the most Dutch. <laughs> so I think what we're really doing is talking about bridging between cultures. People who have already tried a lot of pilot projects give us a kind of creative vision. 
And then that creative vision hopefully informs the planning, which has to be very clear and meet all of the legal requirements and so on. Mm -hmm. But I think you need that creative vision applied to your place. Yeah. Let's um, bring in one last caller here. Let's go to uh, Peter in San Francisco. Welcome. Um, Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, The play that came to mind for me is The Pieton de Lair by UNESCO. It's um, an amazing, imagined, a perfect town where even the climate is controlled mm-hmm. and where, of course, nobody can stand to live there. <laughs> and uh, constantly off stage, right and left, you hear people screaming, and none of it's ever explained. But the thing that makes it seem appropriate here is the fact that um, I read that Putin and a lot of the main people running Russia are actually looking forward to the ice melting because they say it's going to turn Russia into a much better port. So it's like there's people actually wanting rooting for it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right, right. That could could go in the play just really nicely. Yeah. Hey, Peter, uh, thanks uh, Thanks so much for that. Um, last couple comments um, here, too. We've got uh, Jeffrey uh, tweets, Dolly Parton has a new climate change song, World on Fire. MC writes in to say, I would recommend the book Prairie Fires by Caroline Frazier, a biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And in her telling the story of Wilder's life, Frazier traces the impact of settlement on the prairie ecosystem, and she extrapolates that to the larger issue of climate change. It's an unexpected source of climate science information, accessible, fascinating, and masterfully told by Fraser. That's a fun one. I hadn't thought about that. Um, as are there any other things that, you know, in your reporting uh, as a, a climate reporter, whether they were designed to be art or they were part of, you know, some planning process that you feel like really helped you understand and, and grapple with sea level rise? Hmm. I know that to hearken it back to KQD, we do these like sea level rise walks every year. Mm. Um, they are having one in January when there's the king tides that are happen- happening. I believe it's happening at the Exploratorium and at, and at Cooley Landing. And it was a great place because you get there and the water looks normal. And by the end, by the end, the water's like covering the area mm. where you were just at or right next to you. So it's like very visual. And then you mm. see the levees and you see the homes below them. And so mm. it's like... And if you add that six feet or two feet, you can under, sort of like understand by being in the place where the water is coming in and coming out. Mm. So I think being in these spaces where the water is, just yeah. like the other artist said earlier, people don't have this relationship with the land, with the water here. And I think mm. that needs a change to understand uh, the future with sea level rise. Yeah, it's a great way to take us out. Um, we've been talking about how artists are grappling with sea level rise. Latest installment of our collaboration with the science team here at the station, Climate Fix. Thanks so much for joining us, Ezra David Romero, climate reporter at KQED, Christina Hill, director of the Institute for Urban and Regional Development in the College of Environmental Design at UC Berkeley. We've also been joined by Ana Teresa Fernandez, an artist and creator of the On the Horizon art installation, Nicole Gluckster, and playwright and director of the Forever Wave, an audio play set in San Francisco in 2070, and Brian Stokel, urban planner, cartographer, creator of the San Francisco flag, and a series of maps about sea level rise. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, 
the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.